It was summertime at the Hollandwell Fairgrounds in the little town of Kirkby in Ashfield, England. On July 13, 1980, hundreds gathered to watch as children participated in a junior brass and marching band competition. A few feet away, the carnival was in full swing. Mouth-watering smells wafted through the air, buttery popcorn, spun sugar, roasting hot dogs, and buried beneath them the faintest whiff of an unfamiliar chemical odor. But on the marching field, the crowd was swept up in the excitement. Kids had come from all over the country to compete in the marching jazz band competition. Most of them had awakened before sunrise, traveling dozens of miles to play. This was their time to shine. At 9 a.m., the sound of the first band echoed across Hollenwell. Parents cheered and clapped as their little ones marched in formation. But just an hour and a half later, the mood changed. One by one, hundreds of children, adults, and even babies dropped like flies. Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Tuesday and Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a one-part episode on the Hollenwell Incident. On July 13, 1980, over 300 people fainted en masse during a marching band competition in Kirkby in Ashfield, England. Today, we'll follow the first few hours of the pandemonium and dive deeper into what could have caused it. Maybe there was something hiding in the food, or scattered in the air, or perhaps the culprit was lurking inside the attendees' very minds. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? 
Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The 1980s were a difficult decade for small English market towns like Kirkby in Ashfield. Margaret Thatcher was the conservative prime minister of England, and as part of her push to privatize British social services, she'd slashed budgets for public services like transportation. With no running trains, many of the elementary-aged musicians had to find other ways to get to the marching band competition on July 13, 1980. Some came from as far as 40 miles away, leaving their towns at 3 a.m. to reach the contest in time. But even that long sojourn did little to dampen the festive mood around the Hollandwell Fairgrounds. Between 300 and 500 children lined up on the field as parents and friends cheered from the stands. But it wouldn't stay that way for long. Around 9 a.m., the first band started to play. The music intermingled with shouts and laughter from the crowds. A young mother named Margaret Palethorpe watched from the stands, her newborn baby sleeping in her stroller. It was a lovely day for an outing, and Margaret smiled as she rocked the pram back and forth to the music. Suddenly, one of the players on the field dropped their instrument. The crowd gasped. Margaret watched in horror as the child crumpled to the ground, unconscious. Another child dropped to the ground, then another. Before long, entire groups of musicians were collapsing. It was like some insidious force traveled through the marching bands, knocking down everyone in its path. Margaret scanned the crowd. To her horror, it wasn't just children who were falling. Nearby, adults collapsed in the stands. Even babies lost consciousness in their strollers. Panicked, Margaret reached down to check on her three-month-old daughter, but her baby wouldn't wake. Panic and confusion swept through the crowd. Parents rushed the field to help their children, while others ran in the opposite direction. Amidst the chaos, one fearful question was on everyone's lips. What was causing this to happen? Back in the stands, Margaret tried calling her baby's name, but she didn't stir. She picked her daughter up and gently bounced her up and down on her shoulder. No response. Margaret's mind raced. Adrenaline pumped through her veins. She had to get her baby to safety, now. She ran to her car as fast as she could, buckled the baby into her car seat, and sped away from the fairgrounds. When she arrived at the local hospital, Margaret found she was not alone. Hundreds of parents had rushed their unconscious children to the emergency room. The hospital quickly admitted Margaret's baby. Thankfully, they were able to revive her. But back at Hollandwell Fairground, it still felt like a war zone. Seven-year-old Claire Brown recalled sitting with her school band that morning, waiting for her turn to perform. She remembered watching the other performers play a snappy jazz tune, but her excitement turned to horror as chaos washed over the fairgrounds. Claire's parents quickly located her and whisked her to safety. She was terrified from seeing her friends pass out and just wanted to go home. But home wasn't safe either. As soon as Claire arrived, she felt nauseated. White foam trickled from her mouth, and she became so disoriented she could barely stand. Afraid to take any chances, Claire's parents rushed her to the nearest hospital. 
The first hospital in Mansfield had so many patients from the Hollinwell Fairgrounds they couldn't admit Claire. Her parents had to take her to another clinic in Chesterfield, almost half an hour away. At the second emergency room, Claire was held overnight for observation. While the doctors did stabilize her, they had no idea what had gone wrong. It wasn't just children that filled the hospital beds that night. Terry Bingham, a firefighter, was also stricken by the mysterious fainting illness. Terry remembered standing near the field when his throat began to burn. A disgusting taste filled his mouth, and his eyes and nose twitched and tingled, as though he was breathing in fumes. Like Claire, Terry fled the competition and went home. He assumed his symptoms weren't serious, though. He was used to fighting fires and had survived gas and dust in his previous job as a miner. His lungs were tough. But the next thing Terry knew, he was in Chesterfield Hospital. He'd passed out at home, and a family member had rushed him to the emergency room. There, he joined the throngs of patients filling the beds. It was like nothing the health services had ever dealt with before. In total, four area hospitals treated patients from the Hollinwell Fairgrounds. Some were so full that people waited on stretchers in the hallway. Ambulances struggled to keep up with the number of bodies piling up back at the fairground. Altogether, 259 people flooded the four area hospitals on July 13th, and nine with severe symptoms stayed overnight. Thankfully, nobody died that day. But in the light of morning, when the children were safe at home, their parents demanded answers. Something or someone must have attacked the band competition, and they needed to know who was responsible. Coming up, the evidence points to poison. The internet. What would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loey, your evidence expert. And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths, or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to our story. After hundreds of adults and children fainted at the Hollinwell Fairgrounds in 1980, the public wanted answers. They needed to know what had made their children sick and if it could happen again. Investigators first looked to the victims for clues. Many reported similar symptoms before they fainted, such as nausea and a burning sensation in their throat and eyes. There had to be something in common that made them all react the same way. So the first suspect was the food. The Centers for Disease Control, or CDC, says that common food poisoning symptoms include nausea, vomiting, and stomach cramps. But severe cases can cause dizziness, lightheadedness, and fainting. And there's only one type of food poisoning that could have swept through a crowd at Hollenwell so quickly. It's the bacteria Staphylococcus aureus, more commonly known as Staph. Normally, Staph doesn't cause illnesses in healthy people. In fact, about a quarter of us have some on our skin or inside our nose at any time. But Staph can create toxins that cause sudden onset distress in our gastrointestinal tract. Serious infections can lead to dehydration and changes in blood pressure, which can induce fainting. Staph spreads easily to unrefrigerated food that isn't cooked after handling, like sliced meats, pastries, and even sandwiches, all of which are treats served at carnival stalls. Imagine there's an outbreak of staph at a factory that processes lunch meat. If one batch is contaminated, soon the whole supply line has staph. The infected meat gets shipped out, sent to a grocery store, and shelved. Then, an unsuspecting customer buys a large amount of this infected lunch meat. However, this is not an ordinary customer. This person runs a food stand at Hollenwell Fairgrounds. They serve the meat in sandwiches to spectators and participants at the band competition. And pretty soon, bodies start dropping. It seems like staff's dirty fingerprints are all over the Hollenwell incident. Nausea, dizziness, and fainting are its M.O., and food poisoning combined with the hot sun sounds like a perfect recipe for disaster. Except for one tiny thing. Most people at the fair didn't eat sandwiches. The vast majority bought water or ice cream to beat the heat. Both of these are fairly unlikely to spread staph. Besides, if it was staph, then the infection would have probably come from only one food stand. But it's highly unlikely that every person who fell sick had visited the exact same stall. And as one witness said, many onlookers hadn't even had a bite to eat from the fair. It was still so early in the day. Ultimately, Kirkby and Ashfield authorities did test the fair food for contamination. They found no sign of dangerous bacteria, so food wasn't to blame. According to one witness, that's because the poison was in the air. Penny Morley was 10 years old when her jazz band performed at the Hollenwell Fairgrounds. 
Years later, she remembered a weird odor lingering above the field. She described it as smelling like onions. Her mother also recalled that the grass had an odd blue tint and smelled like bleach. Because of reports like these, some thought a dangerous chemical was loitering in the grass and the air. In which case, the Hollenwell incident wasn't a case of food poisoning, but a terrible crop dusting accident. To crop dust a field, you fly over it with an airplane that sprays pesticides, antifungal agents, or other chemicals. These protect the plants from pests and disease, but depending on the chemical and the dose, it could be poisonous to humans. Crop dusting would help explain the physical symptoms like sore throats or runny eyes. Perhaps the chemicals could even overwhelm more sensitive people, knocking them out. But community leaders claimed no one sprayed Hollenwell Fairgrounds before the competition. But there was another possibility, known as pesticidal drift. Because while the fairgrounds hadn't been crop dusted, a nearby field had been, just two or three days before July 13, 1980. Theoretically, if someone dropped the pesticides on a blustery day, it could travel to nearby properties, like the fairground. And even if there wasn't wind, chemicals could still spread. If it rained or someone watered the field, the runoff could trickle down to the fairground and evaporate in the summer air. Some people could be affected immediately. This is potentially why children started passing out mid-competition. But it's also common for pesticides to sit on people's clothing without being noticed. Someone could be breathing in hazardous fumes or particles from the chemicals for hours before they felt ill. This could explain why victims like Terry or Claire only became sick after they went home. The only question then was which chemical was it? And some 23 years after the Hollenwell incident, one researcher believed he'd targeted the right one. In 2003, Dr. David Ray, a medical scientist and expert in neurotoxicology, investigated the Hollenwell incident. Dr. Ray established that the fumes were a result of tritomorph, a fungicide banned by the UK two decades after the incident. Tritomorph is a lab-made chemical. It was created in the 1960s and used to kill fungi that threaten crops. For years, it was considered harmless. But today, the World Health Organization classifies it as moderately hazardous. They found it can cause skin soreness, eye irritation, and in high enough quantities, it can be deadly. Unfortunately, we don't have the data to prove that Tritomorph was the culprit at Hollenwell. At the time, the government didn't examine the field for it. In fact, they didn't test for crop dusting poisoning at all. Since it wasn't considered hazardous at the time, they probably didn't think it could have caused the illness. So no one checked if any of the victims came in contact with the pesticide. But even without this evidence, some survivors believe that the Hollenwell incident wasn't a case of mass food poisoning or a reaction to harsh chemicals. Instead, the enigmatic fainting illness that affected hundreds of people could have been all in their heads. 
A photographer named Neil Lancashire remembered something odd happening at Hollinwell that stuck out to him even amidst the falling bodies. Supposedly, a voice had sounded from a loudspeaker, instructing fairgoers not to eat the ice cream because they thought it might be contaminated. The second ice cream was mentioned, entire groups of people began falling to the ground. According to Neil, these were probably people who had eaten ice cream. Next, the voice on the loudspeaker changed tactics. It said it was mistaken. The ice cream was probably fine, but organizers felt concerned there was something in the water. Again, huge swaths of fairgoers fell to the ground, convinced they drank tainted water. And each time the voice blamed a new culprit, scores of other people fell to the ground. In other words, people were only reacting to warnings about something they'd ingested. Neil's testimony points to a dubious explanation in cases like these, mass hysteria. Mass hysteria is a social phenomenon in which the brain reacts compulsively to threatening stimuli in a group setting. In other words, if you see something bad happening to another member of your group, your nervous system misfires, causing you to react in the same way. Imagine that your friend eats a bad piece of meat. They become nauseous and throw up. Your brain is worried that you ate the rancid food too, so it causes you to feel nauseous as well. You may even throw up. If you had eaten the bad meat and your body was actually sick, this makes sense. But if you haven't ingested the meat and you aren't actually in danger, you're displaying mass hysteria, especially if everyone around you is reacting the same way. Following their investigation, local authorities in 1980 agreed with the mass hysteria theory. Apparently, the government did their due diligence, testing the various booths for food poisoning. Everything, including the ice cream, came back negative. They tested the water. It was safe, too. So they cast their net wider. Authorities tested the air and ground for nerve gas residue, thinking there could have been a terrible accident. But again, no dice. They even tried to see if radio waves could have somehow knocked the attendees out. Nothing there, either. With no apparent physical cause, they decreed it must be a case of mass hysteria. But we should point out that nobody knows if Neil Lancashire's exact theory is correct. Aside from his testimony, there's nothing to prove that a series of loudspeaker announcements actually took place. Instead, the crowd may have succumbed to mass hysteria after someone passed out from heat stroke or dehydration or a pre-existing medical condition. Either way, mass hysteria could still operate in the same way it always has. You see something bad happen to someone else, and the fear of imminent danger spurs an involuntary reaction, meaning you literally worry yourself sick. It's a bizarre phenomenon, but psychologists think it's a result of group survival. Imagine you're an ancient human living in a hunter-gatherer society. Your group stumbles upon a new type of berry, which you all eat. If the berry is poisonous, it might cause a member of your group to vomit. When you see that person throw up, you automatically do too. 
It's your brain's way of protecting you before the berry can do any more damage to your system. Theoretically, this hardwiring still exists in our brain today. And in an article in Smithsonian Magazine, sociologist Robert Bartholomew explained mass hysteria further. He claims it's like the opposite of the placebo effect. To jog your memory, the placebo effect occurs when someone takes a treatment without any medical value, but their condition still improves. For example, if you have a headache and your doctor offers you a Tylenol, but unbeknownst to you, it's really a sugar pill. Your headache may still go away, though, simply because you believe the pill would help. Bartholomew argued that if your mind can make you feel better by thought alone, the opposite is also true. You can trick yourself into believing you're sick because others around you are sick. And mass hysteria doesn't just cause illness. It can also spread compulsive, uncontrollable behavior. In 1962, in what is now Tanzania, a schoolgirl started laughing, and she couldn't stop. The girl chuckled so hard and for so long that others began tittering too. But as soon as they started, they couldn't stop. The whole classroom filled with a chorus of laughter. It spread through the entire school, infecting students of all ages. Eventually, the school had to shut down for the day because no one could concentrate. Oddly enough, only the students were affected. The teachers were just as stern as ever. But after the girls went home, their laughter spread to their families. Pretty soon, neighbors started chuckling. And eventually, laughter rang out from every house in the village. These chuckles didn't come from humor or joy. It was a compulsive, uncontrollable reaction to their group surroundings. It was as though each villager's mind had tricked them into thinking they couldn't stop laughing either. Believe it or not, it took two years for the laughter to completely die down. And it took a toll. According to the Chicago Tribune, the villagers had suffered from, quote, fainting, flatulence, respiratory problems, rashes, crying, and screaming. What happened in Tanzania was far from the first case of mass hysteria, or the most damaging. One of the earliest and most bizarre examples comes from Strasbourg, France. And in this case, people actually danced until they died. Coming up, we explore what happens when your own brain betrays you. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now back to the story. Authorities believe that mass hysteria caused hundreds of people to faint at the Hollinwell Fairgrounds in 1980. And their claim had precedent. Over 400 years before, a similar phenomenon hit a small city in France. In July 1518, the people of Strasbourg, France, suffered from a devastating case of the Dancing Plague. It all began with a local woman known as Frau Trophea. One day, Trophea stood in the middle of a narrow street and, for some unknown reason, began to dance feverishly. She danced for hours on end, stopping only when she had collapsed from exhaustion and resuming the minute her eyes reopened. By the end of the week, 34 people had felt compelled to join her. After a month, that number grew to 400. It got so bad, Strasbourg authorities stepped in. And strangely, they thought the only way to cure the populace was more dancing. They built a massive dance hall, hoping that by catering to the dancers, they would eventually have their fill of dancing and stop. Unsurprisingly, it didn't work. More and more people joined in with the dancers, who looked absolutely miserable. A written account from the time said the victims had a look of fear and desperation as they jumped and cavorted. For them, it was a compulsive, terrifying dance with no end in sight. The dancing plague lasted almost two months before the victims finally stopped. At that point, it was the end of the summer of 1518. Dozens of dancers had died from heart attacks, strokes, and pure exhaustion. In the aftermath, people searched for an explanation. Some of them believed it was the divine intervention of St. Vitus, the patron saint of dancers. An old Catholic legend said that if you made him angry, he would curse you with a dancing plague. This belief possibly fed the mass hysteria that infected Strasbourg. If you were a devout Catholic in the Middle Ages, you probably trusted in the power of St. Vitus. And if you saw he was angry with those around you, it would be easy to imagine he'd cursed you too. This could convince your brain to compulsively dance for days or even weeks. But in the case of the Hollenwell incident, some witnesses disagree with the official version of the story. They don't think it was mass hysteria. Terry Bingham, the firefighter who attended the competition, felt positive he hadn't panicked or suffered any psychosomatic symptoms. Terry claimed he could vividly recall the incident, and he believed his background would have prevented him from being susceptible to groupthink. Firefighters go through rigorous mental training to deal with the danger inherent to their jobs. So he believed it was impossible that a compulsive mental phenomenon would make him pass out. But according to sociologist Robert Bartholomew, that doesn't mean Terry couldn't fall victim to the phenomenon. Bartholomew said, quote, Parents and students fight the diagnosis as no one wants to accept that their kids were hysterical. In reality, it's a collective stress reaction and found in normal people. In other words, mass hysteria isn't a test of someone's physical or mental fortitude. It's more like a knee-jerk reaction to stressful stimuli. 
It also presents other symptoms similar to a typical illness. In December 2000, a journal called American Family Physician published a paper listing the most common mass hysteria symptoms. According to the journal, 46% of victims experienced lightheadedness or dizziness, 41% had nausea, 30% suffered from irritated throats, and 13% had sore eyes. And while physiologically real, meaning those studied really did have physical symptoms, the symptoms had all originated from the patient's minds. There's no doubt mass hysteria is real, as are its symptoms. But there are other issues when we apply this explanation to the Hollandwell incident, namely the babies. Many argue that babies may not be able to process complex social interactions like mass hysteria. And according to Zero to Three, a nonprofit focused on child development, the explanation lies in the synapses. Synapses are essentially the electrical conduits that allow two nerve cells to connect. They form when a child learns new information. For example, if a kid touches a flame, they instantly feel pain. The synapses in their brain then connect fire to pain. Between birth and age two, the brain's cerebral cortex goes from having thousands of synapse connections to over a hundred trillion. In other words, in cases of mass hysteria, most babies probably haven't formed the synapses to be aware of what a group might be doing and how it might affect them. Unfortunately, scientists can't know for sure, as there's barely any research on this particular topic. According to the research group Valentine and Blackstock, doctors rarely perform psychological testing on infants or toddlers. This is because every infant's brain is undergoing rapid, unique changes. In the end, mass hysteria only seems to partly explain what happened at the Hollandwell Fairgrounds. If Margaret Palethorpe's three-month-old baby and other infants succumbed to fainting as well, it seems like something else must have been the underlying cause. Picture those small children playing in the competition. Armies of kids, some as young as seven years old, each wearing heavy wool marching band outfits. With no public transportation, some of those children had been up since 3 a.m. and walked miles to reach the field. That's a long time for anyone, let alone a small child, to endure physical exertion, especially under the hot July sun. Then there's the anxiety they must have felt performing in front of a large crowd. It's a lot of stress on little bodies. Add to that some pesticides being kicked up into the air, and the next thing you know, the first child drops. The other children see this, and their nervous systems take over, trying to protect them from a threat. One by one, they fall. The hysteria ripples outward. Panicked parents start fainting. Even babies fall ill from the potential pesticides floating around. Even today, there's no satisfying answer. UK authorities closed the case in 1980 and chalked the whole thing up to mass hysteria. But perhaps in time, we'll finally figure out what happened at Hollandwell. After all, authorities used to think tritomorph was harmless. Now it's considered a dangerous chemical. 
Perhaps tomorrow, we might discover some shocking new revelation that could also explain the Hollandwell incident. Maybe something even more conclusive. Until then, watch your back in group settings. You never know what kind of self-inflicted illness you may unwittingly succumb to. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We will be back next time with a new episode. For more information on the Hollandwell incident, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Nottingham Post, Birmingham Mail, and the BBC website extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. See you next time. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kerry Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Sheila Mong, with writing assistance by Molly Quinlan and Ali Wicker, fact-checking by Cara Mackerlein, and research by Bradley Klein. Unexplained Mysteries stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.